Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Acacia grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ so this epistle like all the epistles is written to a, a certain group of people and in this case Paul is writing this letter uh, which is called an epistle in the Greek he's writing this to the church in Corinth. And, uh, but he also says, he's greeting the church in Corinth, but he's also saying with all the saints who are in all Achaia. What is Achaia? Achaia refers to a very large part of Greece at the time of this epistle. And so Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, but he's also writing it basically to a bunch of other churches as well, other believers all throughout Greece. This is what is known as a circular epistle. It was, they were purposely, Paul wanted them to make copies of this epistle and pass it on to other churches. You know, the interesting thing about the New Testament is this lends to the veracity of the New Testament that you're holding in your hands. It lends to the veracity or the truthfulness or the, uh, the authenticity of what you're reading this morning. And the reason why is because of all these copies that the Christians wrote. Um, in fact, um, it's, it's been said that you could take all the New Testaments that are in print and destroy them all. And there have been people that have tried to do that, right? They've tried to get rid of the Bible over the years. And you could reconstruct the New Testament minus, I think, just a couple of verses or maybe even words or phrases. Almost the entire New Testament could be reconstructed from all the manuscripts that we have in existence. Uh, in other words, um, that actually lends to the veracity of the New Testament, the abundance of manuscripts. Now, when you get to the Old Testament, it's a different story, uh, authentic as well, um, but that's another Bible study all in itself. We'll get to that someday. I hope to. It's an exciting thing to look into. So we're looking at... Paul is giving, uh, 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 he's expressing that God is the God of comfort. And that's kind of the, basically the chapter of uh, this first chapter. But you know, actually all, I think it's seven of the first, the first seven chapters in Corinthians, in the second Corinthians, all deal with God's comfort in one way or another. Now you might say, well, why is this, why did it matter? I mean, Paul's writing this letter to uh, individuals within a church in Corinth. It's kind of a personal thing. Why is he wanting it to be spread throughout all the churches in the area? Well, the reason why is that, you know, the particular situations that Paul addresses in these epistles, they, vary, or they are unique, I should say, to certain individuals, certain situations. But the issues that believers face and the principles found in these epistles, they apply universally to all believers. And so this morning, we're looking at the God of all comfort. And I know that there are a lot of people out there today that could hear a message about God's comfort because of everything that's been going on. Either they've lost their jobs because of this, uh, this virus, or possibly their hours are reduced, or maybe they just have that threat, or <clears throat> not really a threat, but that feeling, that heavy cloud that, hey, my job, they could call me tomorrow and say, you, know, you don't bother coming in 
till this is all done. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on with a lot of people, not to mention those that are sick from the virus itself. And so a word of comfort, isn't that something that we could use today? So I'm thankful for this chapter. So Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Again, like I said, the first seven chapters deal with God's comfort uh, in one form or another. And so he says here that God is the Father uh, of mercies. And, you know, you look at that, uh, God is a compassionate Father. Sometimes people don't look at God Almighty as being compassionate or merciful, but he is. He is, he is characterized by mercy. In fact, Micah, the prophet, in, in his book, uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, he proclaims this about God the Father. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. You know what's the opposite of mercy? The opposite of mercy is hardness of heart. Let me ask you this, rhetorically, you don't need to talk. Well, you can talk into your computer or your TV or whatever. I won't hear you, but um, let me ask you this. What do you delight in? Are you characterized by having a hard heart? Of being a very, you know, just, man, you're cold, you're hard. You're, you're just like, everything's black and white, and if somebody crosses you, man, you let them know. Or are you like God, who's characterized by mercy? Interesting thing. What do you delight in? Do you delight in being, having a hard heart, or do you delight in expressing mercy? So the very first point we're looking at in this chapter is that God is merciful. He's the Father of mercies. But as Paul points out here in verse 3, he's also the God of all comfort. Well, what do you mean by comfort? I mean, you could think of being comfortable, right? Uh, comfortable is sitting on your couch, you know, having a, uh, a soda and your feet up and stuff. That's comfort. Uh, comfort is maybe comfort food, like macaroni and cheese. That's one of my comfort foods. Um, but what is comfort in the Bible? Well, we know mercy. Mercy is, it kind of gives the sense in the Bible of soothing sympathy. Having sympathy, having a soft heart towards someone. Comfort in the Bible is the Greek word parakalesis, and it comes from the word parakaleo, which means to call near. There's a, the English word comfort, it comes from the Latin word comfortis, which means brave together. So the idea behind the word for comfort is strengthening, it's helping, and it's making strong. In the New Testament, comfort is coming, along some, uh, coming alongside someone in order to help them and ultimately to strengthen them. So in other words, what Paul is saying here in verse 3, God is not only sympathetic towards you and I, he's not only characterized by mercy, but he also draws near while we are suffering. So, you know, you're not going through this alone. That's a, bit, that's a thing on the TV commercials, right? We're all in this together. And you see these movie stars, you know, and they've got these fancy homes and they're, they're, they got all this fancy stuff. We're, we're all in this together. Yeah, they're not worried about their income like some of us are, right? But God promises to never leave nor forsake his disciples. So you truly, with God at least, you truly are not alone. God is with us 
He draws near us while we're suffering. He provides help in our suffering. And not only that, but he strengthens us through our suffering. So he goes beyond simply the, the emotion of sympathy. He does something about it to help. So God is the source of all comfort. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God provides comfort in so many different ways. He provides comfort through the scriptures. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort, there's that word, of the scriptures might have hope. So the, God's word provides comfort. Paul even describes the preaching of the gospel as he would teach it in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, uh, 2 and 3. He describes it as comfort. The message of the gospel is comfort. Um, in Acts, the Jerusalem council, they gathered together and they wanted to send a letter to the Gentile believers because there was a big uproar about whether Gentiles needed to follow all the rules of Judaism or not. And so the Jerusalem council met together, they wrote a letter, they gave it to Paul and had him send it to the churches uh, throughout all over in the known world at that time. And in Acts 15 verse 31, it says that the letter that Paul sent, that the, the, the Jerusalem Council sent, it encouraged the believers who read that letter. That word encouraged, it's the exact same word, paraclesis. So God provides comfort through scriptures. He also provides comfort through the promised Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25, the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ, is known as the consolation of Israel. And that's the exact same word again, consolation of Israel. He also gives you and I, the believer in Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, who is called the comforter. That's, again, the same word, John 15, verse 26. And there's one other way that God provides comfort. He provides comfort through others in the body of Christ. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So there's, God is the source of all comfort and he provides comfort in all these different ways. Well, let's take a look again at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted, comforted, excuse me, by God. Now, you and I know we live in a fallen world, right? Uh, a fallen world, suffering is a normal part of the human experience, and believers are no exception. You know, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you may get a flat tire this week driving down the road. You know, you, you, things happen. You might get sick. Things happen. Uh, believers are no exception. In fact, um, suffering for the sake of Christ, being persecuted for your faith, Jesus said, it's promised to you and I, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. So, you know, suffering is not a strange thing. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I'm the only one going through this. No, you're not. We all suffer in different ways. But for the man and woman of God, God provides 
comfort in tribulation. Paul is writing this and he's speaking from experience. Paul and his companions, and you can read about all the different things that they did in the book of Acts, God comforted them in everything that they, all the trials and the tribulations that they experienced. And you know what? We serve the same God that Paul did. God hasn't changed. He's the same God. And so Paul says here, the comfort that we receive, it's not just for our own benefit, but God comforts us so that we can in turn comfort others. Adam Clark wrote this, even spiritual comforts are not given for us for our use alone. They, like all the gifts of God, are given that they may be distributed or become the instruments of help to others. So God is using suffering, and he allows suffering in certain times and certain situations. He allows it in our lives to train us to become like Barnabas. You remember Barnabas? You can read about him in the book of Acts. Barnabas, his name means the son of encouragement. That, by the way, is the exact same word again for comfort. It's encouragement. So as you read through all these different words, you kind of get a fuller idea of what that comfort actually is encouraging someone and so verse 5 Paul says now excuse me for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us so our counsel, uh, consolation also abounds through Christ now if we are afflicted it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for the enduring for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer or if we are comforted it is for your consolation and salvation I don't know if you caught that. Paul says, hey, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. It's for your consolation and salvation. Why? Because we're going to share with you how God came alongside us, how God strengthened us, how God has comforted us so that you can endure the same sufferings that we have suffered. You know, sometimes when we go through a difficult thing, we can be kind of myopic, right? It's like, God, why is this happening to me? Why, why me? Is, is there something that I've done wrong? Why me? And we can get all focused internal about ourselves and why we're suffering and all that. Um, but Paul doesn't have that attitude here. He says, hey, if we're afflicted, it's for your benefit. Have you ever thought of that? You're going through a difficult time, it's for the benefit of somebody else? Wow, new concept. Or he says, or if we're comforted, it is for your comfort. Again, same reason as above. Either way, it didn't matter to Paul what he went through. He realized that God is not only going to strengthen him, but he's going to use that later on in Paul to strengthen others. You really get an or a sense of Paul's attitude in those verses. The feeling is, you know, Paul doesn't say, hey, uh, when I get through with this suffering that I'm going through, man, then I think God's going to really use me to minister to others when, when I get through this. You know, but in the meantime, man, I got to just hunker down. I got to just survive this. And, you know, sometimes we can have that attitude when we're suffering. And I just want to, I just want to, you know, uh, just hang on there. And we kind of shelter in place, so to speak, spiritually. And then we think, you know, once we get through this, man, then I'm going to really start ministering. You don't read that in Paul's letter here. Paul basically, he's saying here, man, I'm not going to wait for the consolation to start ministering. It doesn't matter whether I'm, whether I'm comforted or I'm afflicted, I'm still going to minister to other people in the middle of a suffering. You know, that's the attitude that Christ has. Remember when Jesus Christ was on the cross? He's, he's already been 
beaten terribly. He's already been mocked. He's up on the cross. They've driven the nails through his hands and his feet. He's got that crown of thorns driven into his scalp. His, his flesh is torn open. You know, he almost, he almost didn't make it all the way to the cross. I mean, somebody else had to actually carry the cross the last part of, of the journey to, uh, to Golgotha where he was crucified. In the middle of his suffering, he starts, he turns to his mother Mary and the disciple John, and he comforts his mother. In the middle of his suffering, he starts comforting his mother by telling John, you know, take, take her in, take, take in, this is your mother, take her in as if she is your mother. And, and so providing comfort, he's, he's thinking about someone else in the middle of his suffering. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 7, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. You know, just as suffering is promised to the believer, so is God's comfort. Verse 8, for, if, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, uh, for, uh, excuse me, let me start over. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayers for us that, many, uh, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many." Here's another point I want to bring up. God allows you and I to suffer beyond our abilities so that we can learn to trust in him and not ourselves. Look at how Paul describes his suffering there. He was burdened beyond measure. So, you know, to explain beyond measure, you know, you have some trial that comes into your life and, you, and you, you, there's, a, there's a start period and maybe you, you know that there's going to be an end period and, you know, you can kind of wrap your brain around it. I mean, it's a tough thing you're going through, but you can kind of, it's, it, it's measurable in your mind anyways. But then something else happens that kind of like is on top of that. And then something else happens. We had a year, 2012, was a year like that for, for my wife and I. Uh, it was like we had one thing that happened, then another thing happened, and then it was like it was, it just kept compounding, and it was just like pretty soon, it was like beyond measure. It's just beyond. That's what Paul is describing. His, he was burdened beyond measure. He was burdened above strength. In other words, his own strength. You know, sometimes something happens in your life, and you're like, you know what? Yeah, this is tough. I don't like it, but you know what? I can do something about it. Uh, once, or actually, we were out of town just last week, and uh, we were uh, in Seattle, and our daughter was bringing us to the train station. Never ridden a train before, wanted to take a train home. And uh, so uh, we were on the way to the train station, and the car breaks down, and there's some issues. And we're right on Interstate 5, about 15 minutes away from the train station. And so, you know, climb out of the car, we look at, try to figure out what's going on, my daughter and I, and we saw what was going on, so we were able to fix it. It was stressful, but, you know, we were able to fix it. We got on the train on time, we made it here, praise God, you know, it all worked out. Um, that was uh, not above my strength, because I, I, I work on cars periodically, so it's like I, I knew what to do, you know, was able to fix it. We were able to get back on the road. 
Um, but sometimes things happen beyond our strength. I know especially fathers and husbands can identify with this because sometimes you know something happens and you know the father and the husband and us we want to fix things in fact sometimes that can be frustrating for my wife she's like you always want to fix it I'm just trying to communicate what I'm going through but you're trying to fix it you know but, that, but that's our nature we want to fix things we want to make it right because that's what how, that's how God wired us and sometimes something happens to our children or to our wife, and it's something that we're just helpless. There's nothing we can do about it. It's beyond our strength. This is what Paul is describing. Burdened beyond measure, burdened above strength, despairing even of life. Now, you know, what I just shared with you, you know, our car breaks down on the way to the train station. Big deal, right? Well, it was a big deal, but big deal, you know, it's not the end of the world. We'll get home one way or another. It's okay. Even if we miss the train, it's not a big deal. Sometimes, the trouble that we go through, it's a life or death situation. It's like where, where you could die, right? Because something is so serious. He says we had the sentence of death in ourselves. In other words, it's like they had a death sentence on them. This is how serious, and you know what's interesting about Paul? Sometimes people like to share every detail of what they're going through. Paul doesn't even, we don't even know what that trial was that Paul went through. We can, we can guess maybe, but we don't really know. But it was so bad, it was a life or death situation for Paul. God allowed Paul to get to the point beyond himself, where Paul, there was nothing Paul could do. The only thing he could do, in fact, he was even despairing of his own life. The only thing he could do was to trust in God's strength. And God was faithful, and God delivered him. Whatever it was, again, we don't even know what it was. He says... God allowed him to reach the point of despair. He says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Doesn't that, doesn't that put a good perspective on things? God, you're trusting in a God who can raise the dead? I mean, is there anything more difficult than bringing something back to life, bringing someone back to life? God raises the dead. If God can raise the dead, is there anything that you and I go through that God is it's beyond God's ability to provide comfort or even in some cases to deliver us from those things? You guys know the answer to that. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. That is such a nugget in the Bible. That is, that is something, if you want to memorize a verse, that's one to memorize. You know, when, you're and I, when you and I are confronted with a trial that we've never faced before, it's, it's something that we, it's a new experience when a lot of times trials are that way. Uh, you know, it's like, I don't, this thing is so huge, I, I don't know, I can't see around it, it's just too strong, it's above my abilities, whatever. Remember what God has done in the past in your life. You've been in that place before where you're in such a tough situation and God delivered you. God strengthened you. He comforted you in that. So you remember God's past suffering. Then remember that God's still the same God today as he was yesterday. God hasn't changed. God is still at work in the lives of believers today. And so he still delivers. And then, so then you, you, you think to the past, you look in the present, God's still doing things. That gives you strength for the future. You know what? I, I trust God's going to deal with this situation too. God's faithful. He'll continue to deliver. Such an important thing when you're going through 
a, a difficult trial. But then Paul says something else here. He says, you also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. This is another important point I want to get across. God uh, gives you and I the opportunity to participate in his work through prayer. You have had the same situation I've had. You've been, you know, maybe you've had a person in your life or you've ran into, you know, you had some kind of interaction with someone or maybe it's even a family member or whatever. And man, you, you just, you don't like how they're behaving or their attitude or whatever it is. And you really want to change them. Well, let me ask you this. Do you want to change somebody? Don't try to manipulate them. You know what manipulation is, right? You, you say something or you do something in order to get a reaction from another person because you really want them to do something and so you kind of create the circumstance so that they'll do what you want them to do. That's manipulation. The Bible talks all, we're not to manipulate people. And so you want to change someone? Don't manipulate them, pray for them. Pray for them, ask God to do a change in their hearts. You want to change someone's circumstances when you feel helpless? It's like, you know, you see somebody going through something, it's like, man, I wish I could help, but. I don't have the resources or the abilities or whatever. You want to change someone's circumstances, you feel helpless, don't despair. Pray. Pray for them. Uh, you want a greater experience of God in your life? It's like, you know, I, I hear all these stories of God doing these amazing things in people's lives, and man, I don't experience it in my life. Don't wait around and go, well, I'm going to wait for God to do something spectacular. Pray. Pray, because God works through prayer. You know, the thing is, God doesn't need you or I to pray in order to do something. God doesn't need our prayers. What God does through prayer is he gives you and I an opportunity to see him in action through our prayer. Answered prayer is a faith builder for you and I. You want to see God uh, you know, you want to have strength in your life? You want to see God answer your prayers? Well, start praying. You know, I think about this. You know, uh, <clears throat> sometimes as, as a parent, a father or a mother, you have a little child that wants to come alongside you. You're doing something. You've done it, you know, your skill letter, whatever it is, cooking or fixing something. Or, you know, uh, we were up visiting our grandchildren and my, one of my granddaughters, she's, I think she's turning four, actually uh, turning four, I think, in another week. Um, she wanted to help me. Can, can I do something with you, Opa? That's Dutch for Grandpa. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like, okay, yeah, you can help me vacuum. Well, I was holding the vacuum, but, you know, she was holding on to it, and she's kind of going with me. And she, it was just like she was in heaven doing that. I'm sure when she becomes a teenager, vacuuming won't be heavenly for her. But at that point, it was really fun for her. God kind of does that with us through prayer. You know, God can do everything. He can deliver. He can work in someone's life. And, and he doesn't need us to do it. But we say, but we say Father, you know, can we, can we participate? Can we help you? God says, yeah, go ahead. I want you to pray for them. And then watch what I do. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the way God works through prayer for the believers. Again, he doesn't need us to, to pray in order to do something. But he lets us participate with him. And it's a great faith builder to, to be praying and then to see your prayers answered. It's a great thing. So prayer is an important point here. 
You know, there's an interesting story in the life of Peter, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 12. And I'm not going to read the whole story to you, but I'm going to read just a portion of it. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. They were being persecuted. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So here's what happened. Herod, he killed, he, 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 he executed uh, John, or excuse me, James, the brother of John. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. I mean, they were, because the Jews, they hated the disciples, right? Just like they hated Jesus. And so they were like, they were happy. And, and, and Herod saw that. And so he goes, hmm, I'm going to do it again. So he arrested Peter. But because there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, he wasn't going to do it during that because of, you know, there'd just be like a riot, you know. So, he, so he's waiting. So in a real, very real sense, in fact, literally, Peter had the death sentence on him. He was going to be executed when the feast was over. That's about as, as that's a life or death situation, obviously. It says in verse 5, it says, Peter was therefore kept in prison. But I love this next part. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So people were praying for Peter. And so Peter is, is, you know, I mean, he was aware that James was killed. And so he's probably aware that, you know, it's his time or it might be his time. So he's asleep in prison. And he gets woken up abruptly by this guy that looks like Michael Landon. And the guy says, hey, get up. And so all of a sudden the chains fall off. And, and, then, and then this guy that looks like Michael Landon's walking Peter out. And so it's like he's having this dream. It's like, man, I'm being released from prison in this dream. And he gets out in the street. Maybe a, a, a breath of cold air blasted over. And all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute. You know, pinching himself. Oh, this isn't a dream. This is real. Of course it was real. God had sent an angel um, to deliver Peter. And so Peter walks down to a house where the believers have been gathered praying for him. And he's knocking on the door. And it says that there was a young girl named Rhoda that came to the door. And she could hear. She didn't open the door. She heard Peter's voice. I'm like, that's ah, Peter. So she goes, runs inside and says, hey, Peter's at the door. It didn't even open the door. She was so excited. And so the believers are like, oh, come on, you're out of your mind. Peter's in prison. We're praying for him. What do you mean he's at the door? And of course... Peter kept knocking on the door, so they opened the door, and there's Peter. God had answered the prayers of those saints. Can you imagine how exciting that would have been for them? God wants to do the same thing for you and I. God provides comfort, and you and I get to help through praying for others. It's, it's, an, it's an opportunity. Don't you, sometimes you look at prayers like, oh, man, i got to pray. Man, look at it as an opportunity to see, to pray for someone and to see God actually do something because of your praying. It's a, it's a great faith builder. Well, let's move on here. Verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. 
verse 14, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Although Paul's plans changed, it didn't mean he was untrustworthy or that God was untrustworthy. Paul's life and his ministry, it was a life and a ministry of simplicity. What does that mean? It means, it literally means singleness and sincerity. It's the virtue of someone who's free from pretense and hypocrisy. Paul lived his life in godly sincerity. He was not disingenuous to anybody. And he says, and more, more abundantly toward you. He's speaking to the Corinthians. Why? Because the Corinthians above everybody else should know that Paul was genuine because Paul spent a year and six months in Corinth ministering and they saw him living out his faith. You know, it wasn't just he was saying something and doing something different. They saw the example that Paul lived in his life. What he said was consistent with what he taught. And so uh, they got to watch it. Verse 15, and in this confidence, so he's trusting, you guys know my heart. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So at the end of Paul's first letter, the first uh, Corinthians, Paul had planned, and you can read that in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul had planned to come to Corinth on his way back from a trip to Macedonia. So he's going on a mission trip to Macedonia. On his way back, he was going to stop in Corinth. Well, Paul's plans changed. He visited them on his way back, uh, on his way to, excuse me. So he was planning on coming back from Macedonia visiting, but instead he visited, he stopped on his way to uh, Macedonia, and then he was planning on visiting them on his way back. So he was actually going to visit them twice. But the first visit, it was full of confrontation. Um, and it was painful. It was painful for Paul, and it was also painful for the believers in Corinth. I can speak from experience as a pastor. I hate confrontation. Confrontation, sometimes it's absolutely necessary, but it's never fun. I, I'm not born for confrontation. I don't like confronting, but sometimes you have to do it. And so Paul visited the Corinthians, and it was, a, it was just a very contentious meeting. And so, and we'll get to it next week when we read chapter 2, Paul decided to spare the Corinthians more pain so he didn't visit them on his return trip from Macedonia. Well, what happened was there were people in the, in the church in Corinth uh, that were opposed to Paul's spiritual authority, and they used it as an opportunity to slander Paul. They basically said, look, he said he was going to come. He wasn't faithful to his word. He didn't keep his word. He's a man who says one thing and does another. And you know, so we can't really trust Paul. And because we can't trust Paul, can we really trust what he's saying about God? And so they were, they were sowing all this discord and, and, and uh, just contention in the church in Corinth. And so Paul responds there, verse 17. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. First of all, Paul wasn't fickle. 
He wasn't making promises and then breaking them. But he says there, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Paul didn't spout off yes, but he, you know, he really meant no. Or you know, he said no, but he really meant yes. No, he said exactly what he meant. So first of all, Paul wasn't fickle. Secondly, God isn't fickle. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. You can go back all the way to the book of Genesis all the way back to the start of mankind, of creation, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And even in the Garden of Eden and all the way coming forward from that throughout the New Test or Old Testament scriptures, God had promised salvation by a deliverer. And God fulfilled his promise in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises to you and I are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a comfort? The third thing I think Paul is trying to bring out in what he's sharing here is that, you know, Paul didn't have the type of relationship with, with God that any other believer in Jesus Christ can't have. It wasn't like Paul was this super apostle with this unique insight to God. Every believer can have the same relationship with Jesus Christ, with God that Paul had. Verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So God establishes all believers, not just Paul, all believers in Christ Jesus. In other words, all believers being established, it means we're in a firm, we're in a settled, uh, established state and condition. You know, God doesn't love you one day and then you do something or you say something and then all of a sudden he changes his mind. I don't love you anymore. God does not change. Circumstances are not an indicator of God's love for you. I hope that encourages you, that alone. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's an important thing to remember when you're going through suffering is that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not only that, but God also gives his Holy Spirit to all the believers in Jesus Christ. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. The Bible says that we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2.20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. 1 John 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So it's not like Paul had this special dose of the Holy Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And that anointing that all believers have that anointing that we have from the Holy Spirit, it's preparing us and it's empowering us to serve God. And it's through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So not only that, but we're also sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, in the old days, in ancient days, like the time we were reading this epistle, people used a wax seal. They would seal a document or, you know, uh, uh, the tomb that Jesus Christ was buried in. It was sealed with, with Pilate's seal. So a seal, it was used, it identified something as being authentic, first of all, and also belonging to someone. And it was also a way to protect someone from tampering with something because it was, you know, it, it's got this seal on it. Well, you and I, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. You're an authentic born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And also, we're protected from being tampered with. That's the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. We're sealed. Not only that, but the Bible says here that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee or an earnest from God. An earnest, what does that mean? It's a deposit. It's like a down payment. It's money deposited by a purchaser in pledge of full payment. So in other words, the Holy Spirit, it's like God's down payment. He says, you know, you're in, you're in the family of God. You, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're, you're in the family of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And he's a down payment of heaven. He's a down payment of what God's going to pay. He's going he's to complete all that work in you and I, and we're going to be in heaven. That's a guarantee of our salvation. It's a seal of our salvation. You might say, well, it, it seems like Paul just kind of switched gears. He's talking about God comforting. Now he's talking about all this other stuff. I think there's a point that Paul is using in bringing all of this up. First of all, God is faithful to keep his promises. Secondly, you have the person of the Holy Spirit God himself dwelling inside of you. So no matter what you're going through, um, no matter whether someone has failed you, they thought, some people thought, and they were spreading that rumor that Paul had failed them. You know, you might think that someone's failed you. But listen, you have the God of all comfort dwelling inside of you. And so I think Paul's point in bringing this up is, you know, look to God for your comfort. Look to him. And then Paul wants to, in this first chapter, address those rumors that, you know, they said Paul wasn't faithful. You know, he changed his plans. Paul's going to say why he changed his plans here. Verse 23. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. You know, because of the first visit, uh, it was so contentious for their benefit Paul decided not to visit him on his return trip from Macedonia it was to spare them Paul wasn't uh, it wasn't like any of his own selfish reasons like you know I just I really don't want to visit them you know I've got something else I want to do it wasn't for Paul's benefit it was strictly to benefit the Corinthians he didn't want, you know, he had apostolic authority, uh, but he didn't want to exercise lordship over the church in Corinth there. Uh, Paul's role in ministry was to increase their joy in the Lord. Uh, don't mistake joy for happiness. Joy and happiness are two different things. Sometimes they're kind of intertwined, but, but joy, it, it's, it goes beyond circumstances. And Paul's ministry was to increase believers' joy to strengthen them, to have them look at God for, for their strength. And so um, Paul says, that's why I didn't come. It was for your benefit. It wasn't, I could have came, but it wasn't for that. For your benefit, I didn't want to come to spare you. 
So we just went through this first chapter of Corinthians, and I kind of want to just highlight on a few points, um, just for us to kind of, you know, maybe put this all into perspective for us. So the first thing, God is merciful, but he is also a God of comfort. You know, he's, he's not just sympathetic towards you and I, but he also does something about it by providing comfort. The second thing, we learned what comfort is, right? Comfort is coming along, alongside someone, helping them if you can, uh, you know, all with the purpose of strengthening them. And we saw the words encouragement's part of comfort, um, consolation. There's just so many, so many words that are trans, uh, uh, translated, but they all mean the same thing, or they're all the Greek, same Greek word. Um, so we learned what comfort is. Third thing, we learn that God is the source of all comfort, right? Uh, you know, through the scriptures, we get comfort through the scriptures. I know a lot of pastors uh, have been teaching through Psalms right now uh, because of the difficulties that everybody's going through. And, and, you know, reading the book of Psalms when you're going through a tough time, it's, it's, it can really provide comfort. Uh, but all scripture, of course, provides comfort. God's the source of all comfort. The fourth thing we learn is that God comforts you and I not always just for ourselves, but that so we can turn around and comfort other people. You know, it's one thing when you've gone through something and then someone else goes through a, simple, a, a, a similar thing. Of course, there's a compassion and a sympathy because you can identify with what they're going through. But the best thing is, man, not only sympathizing and being compassionate, but also doing something. You know how God's helped you, man. I want to help you the way God helped me. So we learn that God's comfort comforts us so that we can in turn comfort others. I hope you've learned today why prayer is important. Prayer is so important. We get to. It's a blessing. We get to participate with God working through prayer. Um, the sixth thing we've learned that just as suffering is promised to the believer, so is God's comfort. The seventh thing, we learn why God allows us to suffer beyond our abilities. It's not that God's out to get you. He's out to just, he wants to make life as difficult as he can for you. God wants to get you and me to the point where we no longer trust in ourselves. We say, God, I can't do anything about it. And we look to him for his strength and God will deliver us. God will give us that comfort. I think finally the last thing in this last portion of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is we learn that ultimately... God is the source of our comfort. Sometimes we can kind of put an expectation on someone else, right? Um, I'm expecting them to come through for me. I'm expecting the pastor to call me. I'm expecting, uh, you know, people should just know what I'm going through and come and, and do something about it and stuff. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes we fail because we're humans. Um, but don't pin all your hope and comfort and strength on a person but on God, who's the God of all comfort. So I think that's what this first chapter deals with. And like I said, as we go through these next few chapters, we're going to be reading about how God uh, provides comfort in different, in different ways. And so we'll be looking at that.